The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Our attention to His Word. This morning I want to begin a a new uh, series with you as we study together the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Last year in 2018, we studied 1 Thessalonians together. We took a time off uh, over Christmas, and now I want us to turn our attention to 2 Thessalonians. I've entitled the series, Real Answers for Real Questions. And the very first question that comes to our attention in 2 Thessalonians is this. If God is good, then why do we experience affliction and adversity? And if you've never asked that question, I guarantee you have friends who are asking that question and maybe even people who are considering giving their lives to Christ, but they want to know something of the character of God and and why is there evil in the world and why are there problems in the world and why do we have adversities? And so this morning, we want to turn our attention to that. Now, I experienced some adversity this week. I'm sure you did as well. My adversity came about when I decided that I would pay one of my credit cards electronically and no longer write a check. And so I went online to the, uh, to the website there, and it called uh, for my password. And I'd, I'd carried this card for some years, but I, 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 don't, I didn't remember what my password was. So uh, I, have a, I have a password that I use for a number of things, and I typed it in the little the little box there, and it, it was rejected. And I, I typed in a, you know, a, a, an aberration of it, a different version of it. Because, you know, you've got to have, have a number and a letter, and something's got to be capitalized, and you've got to have this, and it's got to be this many long. And I, I typed something else, and I typed something else. And finally, I was prompted, and they told me that if I forgot my password, that they would email me my password. And so I, I chose that option, and a little bit, email came up, and I had a password, and I was ready to go, so I was really excited about it, and I typed my password in, and then it asked me for my username. I, I, I didn't remember my username either. I tried a couple that I'd used, uh, and then it prompted me, and it said that if I forgot my username, they would email me my username, and I started thinking about how easy it was for Russians to hack my account, but nevertheless... I uh, went in, and they sent me a username, and, and then the next thing was I needed a four-digit security code, but I felt pretty good about that because I got one security code, four digits, you know, for my phone, everything else, so I felt good about that. I typed that in, and I promise you can't make this stuff up. The very next thing was I needed a four-digit reminder so that if I forgot my original security code, I would have a new reminder of that, and couldn't figure that one out. So I typed my security code first and said, no, you can't have the same code. So then I had to type another thing. And I finally got that worked out. And I came to the security questions. You're, you probably have these as well. And so I, I thought I was doing okay. It said uh, my mother's maiden name. I typed that in. It said my first car. That brought a little angst for me because I've I pretty much my whole life been trying to forget that Chevy Chevette. 
Uh, but I typed it in, and then I came to the third security question, and it said, my dog's name. Well, I don't have a dog. And there was, I couldn't click off of it. I couldn't click past it. I had to answer the question. I was going nowhere. After a click here and a click there and I couldn't go anywhere, a prompt came up and it said that I could call an 800 number. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to get off this website. I want to talk to a real person. I called the 800 number. I didn't get a real person. I got a robotic kind of thing. The robotic kind of thing told me I had a, I had to type in my uh, account number, and I had to type in some other stuff, and then I had to choose between English, Spanish, and I think Lithuanian, and a couple other languages. And uh, then I got past that, and then I thought I was ready for a real person, but it said if I wanted to do this, I pressed one, this is two, this is three, this is four. None of them fit what I needed to do. So I thought, well, they want my money, so I'll go with the pay the account thing. I got to the pay account thing. After a, after a wait in which they reminded me that this uh, could be recorded uh, for quality purposes, I know what it was now. It's because everybody's so frustrated by then, they want to sue them. And so uh, I got that number, and I finally got a person, and I told her what I wanted, and she said, that's my, not my department, I'll reconnect you. After another long wait, I was reconnected to a guy that I'm pretty sure is in Bangladesh. And I was actually regretting that I chose English. I think we had done better in another language, the two of us. And uh, he finally said, well, he said, let me help you, Mr. Jones. He said, I'm looking at your screen. And I thought, that's incredible. He's looking at my very screen right here on my computer. And then I had all these conspiracy thoughts of the government, but I put those aside and he said, here's all you got to do. All you got to do is type in the name of your dog and you're done. I said, that's why I called. I don't have a dog. He said, it's not a problem, Mr. Jones. Just type in the name of your cat. I said, oh, I don't have a cat. He said, type in, just type in the name of a pet. I said, I don't have a pet. He said, what kind of person are you? And he hung up on me. I decided that I would pay by check. Now, most of that story is true, and uh, the angst that I felt is all true, and the adversity that I went through, but to be honest, we probably wouldn't even count something like that among the things that are really the adversity that we have in life. The problem for us is that we're doing life, and we've got relational problems. Maybe it's the marriage, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your neighbor. Uh, we have, many people have health problems, and you, and you got the angst that goes with that, and doctors, and decisions, and, and medicines, and, and, uh, and, then, and then you've got uh, maybe financial problems, and how are you going to pay your bills, and how are you going to do this, and you got nothing for retirement, and so you have, uh, you have the, that, and, and then you get a call maybe from the, from the kid's teacher at school, or you got a problem with this, or a hot water heater goes out, and, and so what happens is you have the adversity of life, and then you have the annoyances like I just described, and all of a sudden, you can find yourself actually wondering, if, if God is so good, why is it that we go through so much adversity in our lives? And most people who ask that, they ask it in a, in a wealth of emotion. They ask it like it's a rhetorical question, like, like the answer really, God really isn't good, because if God was good, we wouldn't do this. But there actually is a biblical answer. 
and we find it in 2 Thessalonians. Now, before we read the passage, let me give you some information that I think will help you as we read this. Our adversity, that is, the problems, the troubles, the afflictions, the suffering, persecutions, whatever you want to put in that category, all of our adversities come from one of three sources. There are three sources to our problems. Number one, adversity is often the result of our sin. Now, I I could have said the phrase this way, and it would have also been true. I could have said adversity is the result of sin. I could have said that that way. Um, because there are certainly the combined sins of everybody who's ever lived and the 7 billion people that are on the planet now. And this is why we have wars and problems. And and, uh, last month we talked about this when we talked about uh, the colors of Christmas, the color of green. We talked about the fact that the the whole world, the planet, groans because it's under the curse of sin. And this is why we have sickness, and this is why we have so many difficulties. So we could blame all of our problems just on this cumulative, uh, the, the whole accumulation of all the sin of the world in all the ages. But that's not really your biggest problem. I could have said uh, that it comes from the sin of others not just the 7 billion people on the planet, but I'm talking about like your husband or your wife or your kids or your neighbor or your employees or your boss. Because let's be honest, those that we're closest to, when they sin, it does have a direct impact on our lives. None more so than marriage. The two become one. And when the two become one, the husband's sin affects the wife. The wife's sin affects the husband. But even that is not your biggest problem. The biggest problem for you in terms of adversity is that the adversity that you struggle with, the great majority of that comes from the consequence of your sin. My biggest problem is me. And and we're pretty quick to, to blame our problems on everybody else. But my biggest problem is me and your biggest problem is you. Uh, I met a person one time, and they told me that they had moved to Phoenix, but all the people there, they just didn't like the people there. So they moved to Kansas, and I could have told them they wouldn't like Kansas. And then they moved to somewhere else, and they said that wasn't good. And now they've moved here. They were coming to church, and they said, I've moved and moved and moved. And, and, I, and I wanted to tell them, guess what? Billy's isn't going to work out for you either. Because your biggest problem is you. Your problem is every time you move, you take you with you. And so you and I, I, the biggest source of all of our adversity is our own actions and the consequence of our own sin. And so that's what I want you to see first. There is, however, a second source of your adversity, and that's Satan himself. Uh, Adversity and affliction are often used by Satan in order to discourage us. Now, I want you to understand a couple things about Satan. I want you to understand that uh, if you're here and you're a believer, he, he, has, n- he has no power over you. He, he can't take away your salvation. He can't make you lose your salvation. He actually can't take away the joy of the Lord. If, if you give up the joy of the Lord, that's your own decision. He can't steal that from you. He, he, he doesn't really have any power over you. Most everything he does is with smoke and mirrors. He tries to get you to think that because you have this adversity in your life, God's forsaken you, or he's not good, or you're just better off going it alone. He tries to discourage us. 
Now, with that being said, uh, I, I knew a pastor one time. He was coming up the stairs to preach. As he was coming up the stairs, he, he, he tripped, and he turned around, and in front of the whole congregation, he said, get behind me, Satan. Well, that wasn't Satan. He was just a klutz. And, and I say that to you because many of you are, are spending a lot of time blaming Satan for your adversity, and he doesn't have anything to do with it at all. And, and let me see if I can help you with this. Satan is not wasting any of his resources attacking you if you are not a part of moving the kingdom of God forward. If you're not a part of intentionally embracing what God has for your own sanctification, if you're not trying to overcome the sin of your life, if you aren't interceding for others in your prayer life, if you don't have an intentional prayer life, if you're not sharing your faith, if you, if as we talk about here at Emmanuel, we've been talking about each one reach one, if you don't have a one and you don't pray for your one and you aren't looking for an opportunity to share your faith with one, then why would Satan waste any time on you at all, you're no threat to him. He does come against those that are working for the kingdom of God to discourage us, but why bother discouraging you if you're not a part of what God is doing? As a matter of fact, you could be quite happy, and he's happy that you're happy as long as you're not doing anything for the kingdom. And so give some thought to whether or not Satan is actually working against you. If you're not working for God, he's not working against you. There's a third source of our adversity. The greatest source is myself. I bring most of my own problems on. Satan can't attack me, especially when we're working for the kingdom of God. But the third source of our adversity is God himself. And the adversity that comes from God is used to reveal our hearts and to grow our faith. And it is this that I specifically want to talk about this morning in the passage, 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles open, find 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to begin in verse 3. Follow along with me because I think God has an answer for you. If, you've, if you're honestly asking the question, why do I have problems in my life? Why is there trouble? Why, why is there adversity? Look and see what God has to say. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul, writing the letter in answering the questions of the church at Thessalonica, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. And it's right for us to do so because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, let me just stop right here. Paul says this by way of introduction. He says this like, like I don't really have to teach this. You already know this. But let me say it to you again. This is the essence of the Christian life right here. Do you see it? Increasing faith, increasing love. Faith growing, love growing. This is the essence of the Christian life. In Galatians uh, 5, uh, verse 6, the, there it says, the only thing that counts, just think about this just for a moment. What if Jesus were to come to you today? Uh, what if the two of you were to have coffee at City Brew? And uh, what if he were to lean across the table just the two of you, and Jesus were to say to you, now listen, the only thing that counts is, wouldn't, wouldn't you listen to hear what he has to say next? So here's what he says in Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith 
expressing itself through love. Faith and love are the whole Christian life. That's what the whole thing is about. And so here we have it again written to us in this passage about affliction. He says in verse 4, Therefore, we ourselves, we boast about you and all the other churches of God for the steadfastness of your faith. And notice, he's talking about that their faith is steadfast even in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, we, we love to read faith growing and love growing, but we don't love the words suffering, affliction, persecution, endurance. Those are words we don't want to hear. But it is those things, this adversity, that reflect our faith and our love. In verse 5, he says, this is evidence. Now, there is an evidence to your life. Your life reveals what you believe and what you say and what you do is the evidence of that. So adversity is the, it enhances that. So this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to, agri- to grant relief to those of you who are being afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. Let's stop right there and see if I can help you through this. So this passage is about affliction. It's about suffering. It's about persecution. It's about adversity. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is that adversity works differently in the lives of believers than it does unbelievers, okay? It's pretty, it's pretty recognizable there. What is the purpose that God has in bringing adversity in the life of the unbeliever. What's his purpose? Well, for the unbeliever, God is working to bring them to repentance and redemption. That's the work that God is doing. You say, well, wait a second. I read this passage with you, Pastor. What I read was he's going to, uh, he's going to bring them affliction. He's going to bring them vengeance. He's going to bring them, they're going to suffer punishment. Yeah, all that's in this passage. But notice, all of that happens Verse 10, when he comes on that day. That day in Scripture is always referred to as judgment day. So, so every unbeliever, everyone who has rejected Christ and rejected Christ and rejected Christ will be separated from God forever. In fact, in that, in that verse, he, uh, or the verse before, he talks about what that eternal punishment is. Verse 9, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So right now, the Lord is still present in this world. The Holy Spirit is still working. What is the Holy Spirit doing right now? Right now, he's working to draw unbelievers to himself that they might experience the repentance that they need and faith that they might know his salvation. 
That's what he's doing. Isaiah the prophet said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And, And so we now know that this is the day and age of grace. This is the day and age of the Holy Spirit. God is drawing. He's the the word almost means that the Bible word means wooing unbelievers to himself. You you know wooing, right? Guys, do you remember when you tried to woo her? Remember you saw that girl and you thought, man, she's so pretty. And you thought, I I I'd like to date her. I'd like to court her. I maybe I'd like to marry her and and so you started to woo her. And finally, when she talked to you, some of you, that was the only word that you could get out. She said, hi, how are you? And you said, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> All these years later, he still doesn't talk very well, does he? <laughs> Wooing has a, it has a romantic intonation to it. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you so much, Jesus went to the cross for you. And the Holy Spirit is at work in this world, wooing, drawing unbelievers to himself. Well, many unbelievers don't see God. I mean, what are they doing? They, they got a job. They got to they they get up in the morning, go to the job. And the reason you have a job is you got to have some money. And the reason you got to have some money is so you can pay for a place to sleep and buy some groceries. And you got to sleep and have groceries so that your body is strong enough to go to the job. And so you go to the job to get some money to pay the bills, to go to the job to get some money to pay the bills. And if they don't watch out, you live your whole life without ever thinking about eternity. So what does the wooing Holy Spirit of God do? He loves you so much, he brings some adversity in your life. He brings you some trouble so that you'll stop and think, there's got to be more to life than this. That's the work of adversity in the life of the unbeliever. Well, what about in the believer? For the believer... God is working to make us and form us into the image of his son. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Now, uh, someone could still say, oh, I thought the wrath of God is poured out on believers. Uh, Romans 1 and 2 teaches that. The whole world, in some sense, is under the wrath of God. That's why it's waiting for redemption. But the wrath of God isn't poured out on the earth until after the rapture of the church. And as we've read here in 2 Thessalonians, it comes on judgment day. That's when it really comes. And so with that in mind then, now Paul turns his attention to the work of adversity. Why it is that God uses adversity. We, we could even say it's a purpose statement. What is the purpose for adversity in the life of the believer? Turn your attention to verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, Here's what it says, to this end. Do you see that phrase? It's a purpose statement. It's for, it's for this result. All of this is so that God can accomplish this. So here's the purpose. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me give you five purpose statements. If you, if you want to know, if you're honestly here this morning and say, why do bad things happen? Why do I have troubles? Why is there adversity in life? 
Why does God allow that to happen? If God's good, why does he allow it to happen? There's a Bible answer to that. In fact, it's a multiplicity of answers. Let me give you five of them. Number one, he uses adversity to affirm our calling. Uh, This statement fills me with sadness, but I believe it. There are millions of people in America who think that they're going to heaven, but they're not. They think they're going to heaven because their parents are Christians. They think they're going to heaven because they attend church. They think they're going to heaven because they would say to you, well, I'm a spiritual person. Uh, I I believe in God. Um, But they've never actually given their lives to God in an act of repentance and faith. And God brings adversity into our lives so that we can determine if that's what you really believe. I've met some people that say, I love Jesus, I just don't like church. I love Jesus, but I don't do life groups. You talk about tithing, they go, I love Jesus, but I'm not a fanatic. Well, how do we know if a person loves Jesus then? If you just say, I love Jesus, but nothing in your life matches that, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the thing about adversity is, when you have adversity, it, it refines what you love. It strengthens what you love. It narrows your focus, and you know, this is, what I, this is what I love. When adversity comes in my life, I don't push God away. When adversity comes to my life, I go run into Jesus. The adversity actually affirms my salvation because he's the one I turn to. It drives me to my knees. I'm looking for Jesus in it, and that's an indicator of who you really are. Adversity helps us affirm our calling. Secondly, God uses adversity to increase our resolve. Do you see that phrase there? He says that not only does he want to make you worthy of his calling, but he wants to fulfill every resolve that you have. Now, let's see if we can separate these. There's a difference between your, your personal preferences and your convictions, your, your resolve, your resolutions. When we read uh, in Daniel chapter 1 that uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted uh, Daniel to eat of the uh, corrupt and impure, unclean foods of Babylon, it says Daniel resolved in his heart not to sin against God. So let's talk about these. These are separate. A preference, McDonald's or Burger King. A preference, Taco Bell, Taco John's. A preference, Wranglers or Levi's. Those are preferences. A resolve is different. A resolution of your heart is the conviction of your soul. It was once said, you don't hold your resolutions, they hold you. So there are some resolutions that we have, some things that God uses adversity to refine the understanding of the resolves of our heart. Here, let me tell you some of mine. I I am resolved to be a better husband tomorrow than I am today. I am resolved to be a better father tomorrow than I am today. I am resolved to be a better grandfather tomorrow than today. I'm resolved to be a better pastor next week than I am this week. Some resolutions in my life. Nothing can drive me away from those. Adversity strengthens my resolves. It, it makes me double down on them. Other things, I recognize, oh, those are peripheral. Those are preferences. Those, are, I, that is, those, things, those things don't matter. And trouble in my life narrows my focus. It helps our resolutions. Thirdly, 
God brings adversity into our lives to demonstrate his power. Look at the last phrase of verse 11. He, uh, he wants to fulfill every resolve for good and for every work of faith by his power. Now, now faith and power always go together. It is our faith that demonstrates God's power. Now, this is in a passage about adversity. So I'm going to say something I've said before. Some of you have heard it, heard me say it many times. Some of you are going to hear it this morning for the first time. This, this passage, this biblical passage, blows up the modern myth that is the, it's the biggest fallacy of American Christianity. Let, let me tell you what it is. People say this all the time. It's absolutely not true. Here's what they say. God will never give you more than you can handle. How many of you have ever heard that? Everybody. Everybody's heard that. God won't give you more than you can handle. I I want you to know that's absolutely untrue. God loves to give you more than you can handle. It's actually something he does on a fairly regular basis. It almost always comes in the person of adversity. It almost always comes in the circumstance of trouble. It almost always comes in the hour of affliction. He gives you more than you can handle so that he can demonstrate his power. If he gives you what you can handle, what will you do? You'll handle it. And if you handle it, you don't need any faith. You don't need any faith if you can handle it. But if he gives you more than you can handle, then you run to your prayer closet, you dive to your knees, and you say, God, you've given me more than I can handle. And he goes, I know. I've been waiting for you to figure it out. And now that you've recognized I've given you more than you can handle, what are you going to do? And you pray. God, you've got to do this. I can't do it. He goes, I've been waiting for you to ask. And then he does something in your life, demonstrated through the adversity of your life, that even people who don't know you well look at and go, oh my goodness, how did she do that? How did he do that? And when they ask you, how did that happen? You get a chance to glorify the Lord. And that's the next thing on the list. God gives adversity to glorify himself through our lives. Look at verse 12. So every, he, gives, he wants every work of faith by his power, verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. This is what God wants to do in your life. Now ask yourself this question. How is God glorified in my life? Do you think that God is glorified in your life by the way that you back out of your driveway? Probably not. You probably don't back out of your driveway any differently than your neighbor backs out of his driveway, unless you're a really bad driver, in which case your neighbor prays, don't let him hit my mailbox again, don't let him hit my mailbox again. But for the most part, God doesn't gain any glory by the way you take out your trash to the curb or back out of your driveway or the things that you do that everybody else does. So if he's going to gain glory from your life, what is it that has to happen? He's got to bring some trouble into your life. 
He brings adversity into your life that's bigger than you can handle so that you run to him, so that he answers your uh, faithful prayer, and then he does that work, and he is glorified in your life because everybody knows you didn't do that. Wow, you couldn't do that. God did that, and he's glorified in your life. All of this, the, the final phrase of verse 12 says, all of this is co- according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fifth reason that God brings adversity into our lives is to remind us that the whole thing, the whole Christian life, everything we have left until we go to heaven, it's all about grace. Do you you know what the Christian life is not about? The Christian life is not about, did you keep more of the Ten Commandments than I did? We fall into this trap over and over again. Well, I've got to do better. I've got, got to quit this. I've got to start that. The Christian life isn't about how many Ten Commandments you kept and how many I kept. None of us kept them all. And so Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. Say amen. He went to the cross and he died for our sins. By the way, when he died on, on the cross, he paid for my sins, past, present, and future. So it's not about my sins. It's about God's grace. And adversity is a reminder that it's not about how smart I am or how good I am or am I better than you or am I more spiritually mature than you. The whole thing is about the grace of God and he always gets the glory when we recognize it all comes by his grace. Now that's just five answers in one part of the New Testament. There are dozens more. The point is God is good and he does love you. And he loves you so deeply that he first woos you. He wooed you to him. When you came with real surrender and repentance, he saved you. He forgives you of your sins. And the adversity in your life is to move you so that you'll look more like his son. So that you'll move in holiness. So that he gets the glory. So that he can demonstrate his power. And so that you're reminded it's not about you. It's about his grace. And that's what he wants to do in your life. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning, and I'm not going to ask you, is it possible that you're going through a time of adversity? I already know you are. You know, you're either, you're either going into adversity, you're already in it, or you're coming out of it. And if you're coming out of it, it just means you're going into it again. So everybody in this room's got adversity. Everybody in this room's got problems. Everybody's got difficulties. I already know that. Here's my question. Are you trying to handle those the way everybody on earth does in an earthly way? Or is it possible now that you can quit looking at your troubles through earthly eyes and you can start to look at your adversity through heavenly eyes, through the eyes of God, to see that he loves you so deeply and that he has brought adversity into your life. He's allowed it to make you after the image of his son, to glorify his own name in your life, to demonstrate his power, to affirm your calling, to narrow your resolves. He's doing all of this to remind you it's all by grace. And this morning, maybe you just need to embrace that instead of dealing with your adversity with bitterness or anger or annoyance or frustration, maybe today you embrace it 
as the act of love from a God who loves you so deeply that he would allow this adversity in your life that you might turn to him. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never given your life to Christ. This is where it starts for you. It starts for you at the cross. And if you'll repent of your sins and you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, you can have everlasting life. Your sin's forgiven. Heaven is your eternal home. And his Holy Spirit to indwell you as you, as you handle the problems of life. Believer, what about you? Are, you? are you moving along to look more like Jesus? Still early in 2019. Maybe right now, a new resolution, a new resolve. I want to look like Christ, even if it means that I share in his sufferings. Will you say yes to that? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I wouldn't embarrass anybody for the world, but how many of you this morning would signify by the uplifted hand and you would just say, I want, I want to take my adversity on in a way that brings God glory. And you just lift your hand up, say, that's, that's what I want. That's my new resolve. That's my new resolution. All over the room, hands everywhere. Thank you. Father, You've seen our hands. More importantly, you know our hearts. We pray that instead of just being fuming mad or annoyed or, or sad or depressed, that we would begin to see adversity in a different way. We'd begin to see it for what it is, the tool that you use to make us look like your son. Father, do this in our lives. Do it for your glory. Do it to demonstrate your power. Do it by your almighty grace. And if anyone looks at our lives and they see you doing this work, we we promise to give you all the glory, all the praise, that you would do this for your own name. Father, do this, we pray, in the most wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Here's something you should always think to yourself. Okay, uh, in the case of this this morning, you could even say, okay, Paul, if that's a Bible truth, then where else, has it, where else is it in Scripture? You, you can always know if it's a Bible truth because you'll find it somewhere else in Scripture. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Instead of you saying, well, this is what I think, what does God say about it? Well, we find this uh, idea of adversity conforming us into the image of His Son in lots of other places. This morning, I've chosen a passage out of Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. The Apostle Paul is also the writer of this. And here's what he writes. It's kind of autobiographical in nature. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All of this is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead." You know, we could put this passage together with the second, second Thessalonians passage. Here the Apostle Paul says, I count everything a loss. You know, one of the things that brings us adversity is when we lose something. 
And there's lots of ways that we lose it. Sometimes we actually lose it. We misplace it. We don't know where it's at. Sometimes it's stolen from us. Sometimes we break it. And the thing that we loved, we broke, and it it doesn't have any value anymore. And we often grieve over these things. But the Apostle Paul says, I, I've already counted all my worldly possessions as loss. Do you know what he was doing? He was holding earthly things loosely that he might hold heavenly things tightly. Is it possible that you hold earthly things tightly and heavenly things too loosely? He said, I've, I've already counted all my earthly things as loss and all my suffering, all my adversity is that I may know Christ and be found in him. Here really is a purpose statement. It's the purpose statement of the Apostle Paul that I might share in his sufferings so that I could become like him. Your heavenly father. Do you know what he wants for you? He wants you to look like his son, Jesus. That's why he gives you adversity. I hope that you'll have a great day. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.